0: I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prasherai get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast water cooler, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Nancy Pearl, best-selling author, nationally honored librarian, and literary critic. However, she is first and foremost a reader and has spent her life promoting reading as one of the most beneficial and joyful experiences anyone can have. She has talked about books on NPR's Morning Edition and hosted the television show Book Lust with Nancy Pearl, which features interviews with authors, poets, and other literary figures. For the 12-book series Nancy Pearl's Booklust Rediscoveries, published by Amazon Echo, she edited a new edition of Claire Huffaker's The Cowboy and the Cossack, providing an insightful introduction to the volume, which is one of the things we're going to talk about today. Hello, friend. Hello. How are you, Paul? I am fantastic. Thank you for being here with me. My pleasure. Tell me about the genesis for your Booklust Rediscoveries. There are so
1: many books that I've loved that are out of print, and I really wanted other people to read these books because they meant so much to me. And Amazon was the only publisher at that time that was interested in doing the project. So I ended up doing a dozen books with Amazon written for adults, and The Cowboy and the Cossack was one of the books that I was determined from the very beginning that I wanted to include.
0: So, for any of our Western fans listening who are unfamiliar with Claire Huffaker, who wrote The Cowboy and the Cossack, let me bring you up to speed real quickly. He was the author of many lightning-fast novels, many of which were made into successful films, such as War Wagon, Seven Ways to Sundown, and Rio Conchos, for which he also wrote the screenplays. His final Western novel, The Cowboy and the Cossack, is perhaps the greatest non-traditional traditional Western ever written. And anyone who has read it will totally understand that seemingly contradictory statement.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. Really, the hardest part about doing The Cowboy and the Cossack is one of the rediscoveries was finding out who owned the rights to it now. I am not a good internet searcher, but one of my former library school students was, and he set out to find out how we could get the book published, who had the rights and who we would have to talk to. And he found Claire Huffaker's daughter, who was amazed that we could identify her because she doesn't go by the last name of Huffaker. She was thrilled and we were thrilled. I was just so excited that more people could now get copies of a nice new edition of the book and read it.
0: It's the one of his books that has never been made into a film, and part of the reason is the rights are so tied up that nobody knows who really does have the film rights at this time. I think it would make a fantastic big-screen presentation even today.
1: Well, I think Samantha, his daughter, feels the same way. She would really like to see it as a film, and it has such resonance still today. It's a book, as you said, it's an unconventional, conventional Western, but it's a book that is so much, in a way, greater than the sum of its part. It's sort of like in Shane, for example. Shane means so much more to me. The symbolism of Shane and the lone man standing up for justice and all of that is so resonant even today.
0: Which brings me to the question of how, of all the books in all the world, did a mild-mannered librarian find herself writing with cowboys and Cossacks across the Russian tundra?
1: I have to say I'm not so mild-mannered. But (laughs) uh, I write about this in the introduction to the book, which was that I love books with epigraphs. I love books that begin with quotations. I love it when authors choose to do that. But of course, to get to the epigraph, you have to open the book. And I found this book, I believe, just browsing through the library, looking for a title that sounded good to me. When I was a librarian working as a librarian in the 80s, the Westerns were all kept in a particular section of the library, pulled out of the regular fiction section, and all the Western readers that I knew were elderly men. And I didn't read very many Westerns, but looking back, Westerns are some of my favorite books. Lonesome Dove, for example, and I would say Little Big Man is a Western. Would you agree with that?
0: I would. They are different because they are not as pulpy as many of the Westerns are. Yeah, And I think what Huffaker does is in between the two.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I found it on the bookshelf at my library, I'm pretty sure, and opened it up and just started reading it. And once you start this book, from the first sentence on, you're just caught up in the world that he's created there. The premise of the book is so interesting. This group of Montana cowboys, right after the Civil War, is taking a herd of cattle to Vladivostok and their adventures. And really, the epigraph from Kipling is so perfect for this book.
0: East is east and west is west.
1: Yep. And two strong men stand face to face, though they come from opposite ends of the
0: earth. Yeah. It is a perfect epigraph for it. But once you got past the epigraph, what were you expecting from the book?
1: I didn't know what I was expecting, actually. I'm normally not somebody who's particularly interested in plot. I read much more for three-dimensional characters and that kind of thing. But this is a book that has it all in a very interesting way. The plot just keeps you turning the pages because you want to find out what happens to these cowboys and the Cossacks that you've grown so attached to. But also there is that fact that you do become attached to the characters in the book. They become important to you and meaningful in their individuality. So I didn't know what to expect. And I certainly didn't expect that it would be one of my favorite books that I couldn't bear to see was not available when it went out of print.
0: When I teach writing, I tell beginning writers, you have to choose the right point of view for the story. Right. Is this an intimate story, which would require a first-person narrative? Is this a wider thriller-type story where you can go into the third person? But also, you have to make a choice about who that narrator is going to be. And I really think that Huffaker made a conscious choice here, the youngest of the cowboys, to narrate this adventure, because as readers, we are really in that character's head.
1: Yes. And the fact that the youngest cowboy is somebody who is without a father and is looking for father figures and finds those father figures in the head of the Cossacks and the head of the cowboys and sees these two men who are so different in their backgrounds, but so similar as people that he can model his life after. That's a really lovely thing to see.
0: It is, and especially when in the beginning he is holding them up as paragons of manhood. But as the story progresses, he does get to see that they're also human, and that makes them even more real to him and more real to the reader.
1: Yes, Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that if they were the kind of stereotypical good guy from Montana and the bad guy from Russia, it would be a far less rich story than it is. And what makes it so rich and so appealing is the strength of Huffaker's characterizations.
0: This isn't just a story about a clash of cultures. That's there, but it underlies this story of manhood and of loyalty and of getting the job done, realigning your priorities when the situation changes.
1: And to me, that larger story of people coming from unfamiliar worlds and discovering that underneath the dissimilarities, they're human, they're men, and they share that. And they share a, a particular view of the world that isn't political, that is particularly human or humane.
0: It's interesting that you say that it isn't political, and I would agree with you, except I have read that Huffaker wrote this as a political statement about America's reliance or other countries' reliance on America as well for wheat and beef and all of those types of things. And I think that may have been the start of the story in his brain, but he goes so far beyond that there really isn't a political statement being made here. It's a rousing adventure story.
1: Right. Yes, from the other side of the world. I was going to say you could read it as a kind of metaphor for the Cold War. I would have loved to have interviewed Claire Huffaker to talk to him about how metaphorical this is and where those ideas came from.
0: That would be wonderful to have on record somewhere. Yeah. Especially how well did he plan out the Tartars warriors are going to be the Apache Indians. This is a wagon train story or a cattle drive story at its heart. And how do I make that into this different animal? And he really does. And that's why I consider it a untraditional, traditional Western.
1: Yeah, definitely. And in many ways, it doesn't pretend to be anything else. And yet it is so much other and yet so much that.
0: The whole is larger than the sum of the parts.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And that's down to Huffaker's skill as a writer, because this book is on quite a higher level than most of the Westerns that he wrote. Mm -hmm. He seems to have invested so much of himself in this. Now, I know Huffaker had some estrangement from his family. And his last book, One Time I Saw Morning Come Home, was autobiographical. Have you read that?
1: Yes, I read that right after I read The Cowboy and the Cossack. I deliberately searched out other books by him. And I do remember when I read it, and it's a story of a young marriage, his parents' marriage, it turns out, Claire Huffaker's parents' marriage novelized. But I remember thinking when I read it that it reminded me of the struggles that Laura Ingalls Wilder and her husband Elmonzo had when they were first married. So it was in that tradition. But I do know that novel really led to the estrangement with his family.
0: It's interesting because in the reviews on Amazon for that novel, there is a family member who's chimed in with their dissatisfaction over the whole situation.
1: Yes. But don't you think that anybody who's writing a thinly disguised memoir as a novel, if you write about your family, you have to either get permission from them to say anything you want or be prepared for unhappiness?
0: The nature of truth is all about perspective. Right. Huffaker's perspective is definitely different regarding his parents' marriage and the family than what the other family members were feeling and seeing. Right. It doesn't invalidate either side, but when all that's being told is from Huffaker's perspective, then you can see why other people get upset.
1: Yeah. I remember in the introduction to my first book, Lust, I wrote about my family, my parents, and described them in a particular way that was true to my experience of them. And my sister was so angry, she didn't talk to me for three years.
0: Oh, my goodness. Um,
1: and it wasn't that she disputed that was how they were. Her feeling was that wasn't the story That wasn't the way she would tell that story of our parents. Her, she would have turned it in a different sort of way than I did. So I've become really wary. I'm staying away from writing about my family.
0: (laughs) As a fiction writer, I take all of those emotions and channel them through my characters, which are often composites. They all have a little bit of me or a little bit of my experience in them.
1: And that's what I did in my novel, George and Lizzie. I just took various aspects of my family, of my parents, and turned them into different characters in the book that it wasn't obviously them.
0: In your introduction to The Cowboy and the Cossack, you mentioned that part of your reason behind choosing that book was because Westerns in general get a bad rap as disposable, repetitive genre fiction.
1: Right, yes.
0: Tell me about what you've seen as a librarian in regards to what you call the ghettoizing of genre fiction.
1: It seems to me the fact that we as librarians generally shelve genre books, mysteries, science fiction, romance, westerns, we generally pull them out of the regular fiction collection and shelve them separately as though they were a different animal than what we might call literary fiction or family fiction. Everything can be given its own genre, but those four, mysteries, science fiction and fantasy, westerns and romance are particularly suspect because people rightly and wrongly expect those writers are writing to a particular outline. So the characters are perhaps seen as not being as fully fleshed out. And that's the kind of thing that just drives me insane as a librarian, as a reader, as someone who wants people to discover the wonders of all the books that are out there, Because to say a book is a bad book, to make that judgment, is such a personal thing to do. A book can be bad for you and your best friend can love it. So these best of the year lists and these statements that this particular author is a better writer than Zaid Gray or Louis L'Amour because of whatever this person thinks about those books is really foolish. The whole notion of a canon and ranking really makes me crazy because the only important thing is what you think of a book, you as the individual reader. And we all read different versions of the books we read. No two people read the same version of a book. You bring yourself and where you are at that particular moment and your mood to every book that you read. So I hate that notion of ranking books and those awards. The Amazon comments particularly drive me insane because one person can't make a judgment if a book is good for somebody else. I've taught at the University of Washington Information School, as the library school is now called, and really over the years have developed this kind of theory of why people like the books they like. And it has to do with your experience of previous books that you've liked and what you're looking for in a book. And some books have multiple doorways to enter into. I think Lonesome Dove appeals to readers who are looking for three-dimensional characters. I think it appeals to people who like a fast-moving plot, and it appeals to people who are interested in a sense of place in their books. And that's a big group of readers, so you can see why that book continues to be so popular.
0: When we're talking about the experience of books, there are some books that I wouldn't read, but I love listening to them. Yes. And I know that you've made a habit of walking in the mornings while listening to audiobooks. Why, for you, is listening to a book different than reading a book?
1: When you're reading a traditional book, whether it's an e-book or whether it's paper in a cover that you hold in your hand, it's really just you and the author who are creating this book you're reading. Paul Auster, who's a novelist and essay writer, in one of his essays says, in my novels, I leave a space for the reader. And then he goes on to say, and in the end, I believe that the book that reader is reading is created by the writer and the reader. So in a way, we create the books that we read. When it's an audiobook, a third person has entered into that connection. And so much of why people enjoy audiobooks is their feeling about the reader of that book.
0: They bring a richness to it. A good reader is somebody that, like a good author, you will seek out again.
1: Right, definitely. Yeah.
0: For me, it's a different performance than if the book is translated into a movie or a television show. It's a third form of that same story delivered in a totally different way, and it's a totally different experience.
1: It is. I've often felt I came late to loving audiobooks, but am now a huge audiobook fan. And I really think in many ways it's a richer experience than reading the book yourself.
0: When I read a book, I will skip over the pronunciation of names I have to think about. Right. And in audiobook, those are being pronounced, if it's a good reader, very carefully for you, and you're really getting more out of it than if you were just skimming along and reading.
1: Yeah, yes. And I listen to a lot of books that I've already read, so this is a wonderful way for me to reread them. And somehow I feel like I get so much more from the audio that I did from my original reading.
0: I feel that way about the Dick Francis books. Uh-huh. I've read all of them, but then I go through them in audiobooks, and it's not like rereading. Right. It's a totally another experience, it and is. I'm getting to have that story all over again. It's yeah, wonderful. I totally agree. You're an outspoken champion of reading. Yes. Why is it still important in our current world, which is filled with so many other forms of entertainment demanding our time? Why should young people care about reading?
1: for a couple of reasons. One is I think being a reader helps you develop empathy for other people and other people's feelings. We as humans spend so much time in our own heads and we are forced to look at the world through the two eyes we have and experience the world through our five senses. But when you read, you look at the world through someone else's eyes. When we're reading The Cowboy and the Cossack, we're looking at the world through that young kid's eyes. That's a really valuable skill. It's a valuable trait for someone to develop, is that ability to look at the world through someone else's eyes. The other thing that reading does is it builds our imagination. It builds our ability to take the words on the page and see them as pictures. That's why we're often disappointed in the movies that are based on books, because we've developed our own movie in our heads. And here's somebody else who cast it differently and rewrote it slightly differently. Reading is an activity that makes you as a human being much more three-dimensional because of what you gain and you learn from it and your interaction with the words on the page. The Harry Potter books, for example, I thought they cast those kids perfectly for those books. But it makes me really sad that kids whose first experience with the Harry Potter books came through the movies, that they will forever see Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter. And their picture of Harry Potter, if they had read the book first, would have been different than Daniel Radcliffe. That sense of imagination, all of those things
0: reading helps you in all of those areas.
1: Yes. It helps you to center yourself. I think it does. I heard somebody give a talk, and she said that literacy is the gift of possibility. And I think that's a wonderful way of looking at the joy of reading in all sorts of ways.
0: Thank you so much, Nancy, for being with us today. I appreciate your time and good reading.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Paul.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening. Be sure to check the Six-Gun Justice website at SixGunJustice.com for information on prior Six-Gun Justice conversations, Six-Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six-Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep reading. Adios! We're out of here. Let's ride.